Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is the Open City Podcast, a show about the past, present and future of London. It will feature new stories about the city and fresh perspectives on the challenges and opportunities we face together. Welcome to the Open City Podcast. In this Open House special episode, we'll be talking about prioritising pedestrians and cyclists and how it's transforming London in the wake of COVID-19. Specifically, we'll be focusing on the City of London, which has taken the opportunity to move swiftly in delivering a series of walkability upgrades that are in line with its long-term transport strategy. It's a strategy which over 25 years could see vehicles banned from about half of the square miles roads, with speed limits slashed to 15 miles per hour. It would also see half of the city streets earmarked for pedestrian priority status, with cars, vans, taxis and buses on some routes only permitted for access. We know active travel is good for health and limiting infection. It improves air quality and also the quality of our public spaces. Yet even now, some of London's busiest streets remain choked with traffic and are often perilous. So what is holding us back and what lessons can other areas around London learn from the square mile? I'm your podcast host, Merlin Fulcher. We're joined by my co-host, Lara Kinnear, and from the City of London Corporation, Bruce McVean, Acting Assistant Director of City Transportation, Clarie Tavon, Group Manager of Major Programmes and Projects, she's part of the Public Realm team, and Laurie Miller-Zushi, Head of Cultural Programming and Partnerships. There was a moment in March during the early lockdown when the geography of our lives became very small, very local and focused on our immediate surroundings. With the use of public transport and unnecessary journeys discouraged, walking and cycling became our principal ways of getting about, whether that be for exercise, shopping or life beyond our domestic spaces. Venturing out into our local neighbourhoods became the only time beyond the walls of our homes where we physically saw other people. The morning walk to the shops or evening walk to the park was where our social life now took place. So by May, the Mayor of London had promised a transport revolution with a tenfold increase in cycling and fivefold increase in walking. With so much of our lives turned upside down, it seemed anything could be possible and a new city of safely distanced zero carbon transport rapidly on the horizon. With the future remaining unknown, who knows what we'll see on our streets going forward, how many cars will be back in the roads and how busy our buses will be. The Mayor's Street Space programme has created temporarily widened pavements and new cycle lanes, but there are still pinch points around bus stops, construction sites and crossings. 
and in many ways it feels like little has changed, except that the city feels slightly more fragile. It feels harder to read and harder to move about in. But if we look back, London was not always dominated by motor vehicles. Is it possible to examine our past and chart an evolution forward which aims to bring some of our ancient streetscapes back to their former glory, with more active and less fossil fueled transport going on? Bruce, perhaps you could describe how the evolution of transport from foot to horse to bicycle to car can be seen in the City of London's historic streets, which are the focus of your work today. I guess let's start with the one thing that hasn't really changed in transport terms uh, is walking. Walking has always been the main way that people um, have got around uh, the square mile. You know, historically, that's the that is pretty much the only way that people would have would have got around. But even now, ninety percent of journeys that start or finish uh, in the city, including obviously people walking to and from public transport, uh, are walked. And uh, much of our transport strategy and our plans for the future are all about safely accommodating people walking around the city and making that experience as pleasant uh, as possible. I guess what has changed over time is that you've seen more and more vehicles, you know, starting off with horse-drawn vehicles, uh, then introducing, you know, uh, bicycles as a private way of getting around. And then in particular, I think in, you know, the last 40, 50 years or so, you've seen people starting to use uh, cars as a way of moving people around in a way that you perhaps didn't do before. You know, even now, today in the city, about 36% of the vehicles on our streets, so including cycles in that, are cars. That includes private hire vehicles like Uber, but not taxis. So that's kind of where the big change has come. And I think it's also where we're starting to see the big change as well. Over the last 20 years or so, we've seen the number of vehicles in the cities fall, and we've seen about a 50% reduction in the number of motor vehicles on our streets in that time. And I guess that's really the trend that we're looking to uh, continue, making sure that the vehicles on our streets really need to be there, that they're serving the city, and that we're using the street space as efficiently as we can which does mean more space for people walking and making it easier for uh, and more attractive for more people to choose to cycle uh, as well. Clarice, um, how how has walking, both in its historic patterns and present day, uh, influenced your approach to delivering improvements in the square mile during your career at the corporation? Hello, everybody. Yeah, I mean, the the history of um, the streets is something we really celebrate in the city. And since I've been working uh, there, it's really fascinating to discover and to also help to reveal uh, the many layers and thousands of years of history which make the city a a unique place. Um, And this dates, you know, back from Londinium, so the Roman London. So there's quite a lot of uh, layers and, and, um, and history to reveal. So when... We look at a project and when we initiate projects, they are always based on a detailed analysis of the city's history, you know, its environment and, and the current influences as well, which will result in a public realm that highlights the diverse wealth of the city's heritage, uh, whilst also embracing contemporary design. And this is how you end up with very interesting contrast, for example, between old churches and hyper-contemporary, you know, towers just uh, a few hundred metres behind. So this is really what makes, I think, the city's landscape very particular. And, and this is something we, we want to uh, develop. 
I think for us in terms of transforming the city is about, you know, looking at short or long-term period and, and delivering projects in an incremental and experimental way, uh, which can lead to major transformation. And for me, the best proof of success is when, you know, you transform a street, you remove traffic and, and you tell people that there used to be cars there and people cannot even remember or imagine that it was the case. So, yeah, this is for me a great success. That is absolutely fascinating. I certainly, I would say that um, uh, in a place, for example, like Trafalgar Square, um, to tell somebody that one side of it used to have cars on it, uh, is, you're often met with utter disbelief uh, if they'd never seen it with their own eyes. Laurie, perhaps this is a good point to reflect on the long tradition of, of public events and outdoor arts uh, within the city of London. So we know that uh, a long time ago, uh, there was a there was a there was a Roman city. It had an amphitheater. That's something you can see underneath the Guildhall Art Gallery. This is a place that's for eight hundred years has been something called the Lord Mayor's Procession, uh, which is obviously a kind of outdoor art. It's a kind of cultural expression in the streets themselves. So how how is this historical precedent? How is this sort of created a sense of civic engagement between the people uh, and the fabric of the city itself? Yeah, I mean, as you said, throughout history, um, the City of London has been a place where commerce and creativity have thrived side by side. Um, and as well as being one of the world's oldest and most important trading hubs kind of over the centuries, the square mile um, has fostered long term growth of the arts and crafts, learning, public entertainment, green spaces, markets, fairs and pageantries. Um, and as the historic heart of London since the Roman times, there are echoes of the past all around um, and the heritage can be experienced kind of in the streets, in its buildings, churches, um, museums and galleries. I think today the city has the most vibrant and diverse range of cult cultural organisations. It's got creative businesses and practitioners who are international, but they're also grounded in a strong sense of place and they want to serve the diverse people of London. Our definition of culture at the city is very broad and inclusive. Um, it exists both in our buildings and our heritage of our institutions, but it also lives in our streets and in the informal cultural spaces in between. And um, it's for everyone, and it's a real, really powerful driver for social mobility. And the city supports culture because it's our belief that the free exchange of commerce is intertwined with the free exchange of uh, creative ideas, but also because we have a belief in a, in a richer kind of wealth, which includes people's well-being, quality of life and a sense of place and community. Some people may think of the city today as a place of wealth and power, and in some ways monocultural. But is there an argument that if we look to the city's past and recognise it as a place of great diversity, of that kind of cultural interchange um, that you've just described. Uh, and much of that diverse culture existed on the streets themselves, where people walked and did other activities. Uh, that might actually be the best place to look for when we think about the square mile's future. 
Yes, I think I think the city is still a very diverse place today, actually. And we welcome people from all over the UK and the world to live, work and visit. Uh, One of the main aims of the outdoor arts programme is to create events and experiences which bring those diverse communities together. Um, And before uh, the pandemic happened, we were planning a cultural event called Mela in the City, where we were working directly with those diverse communities in the Aldgate area to create a celebratory event for the Bangladeshi New Year. And you mentioned um, the impact of COVID. Do you think with what we've seen over the last few months, there is another moment of opportunity for a lot of good to happen on the streets as well as dealing with the impact of a pandemic? We've certainly seen kind of as part of the um, pandemic that people have been spending much more time kind of outdoors and enjoying public space and taking culture out onto the streets has a really strong and important role um, to play in recovery. It creates a lot of uh, opportunity for the city to think about how we really use um, our public space. And a lot of the initiatives and and major schemes that we're going to talk about in the podcast will actually create a a platform or stage, as it were, um, to be able to deliver a cultural programme which will help encourage people to come to our public spaces and, and aid the recovery of the city and London. When we think about the great public spaces of London, we often imagine Trafalgar Square, Parliament Square, the South Bank or Hyde Park. But the reality is that streets are the real big public spaces of our lives, where we see our neighbours, friends and family, and shape our views on what is going on and what is cool. For more than a decade, we've seen that high streets across the UK have struggled to reinvent themselves and to compete with online retailers and large complexes alongside other broader societal and cultural changes. We know that the vitality of our high streets relies on many factors, including local employment, a variety of retail and other services, and their general level of walkability. So the facts really speak for themselves. The more walkable and pleasant for pedestrians and cyclists, the more successful our streets and neighbourhoods become. But as failed attempts to pedestrianise Oxford Street and other major thoroughfares show, this is far from simple to achieve. Uh, Clarice, is it as simple as just creating streets where pedestrians and cyclists have a sort of technical priority and in some ways others lose out? Or do we actually need to recognise that making streets that both inspire and delight people is the only way something like this can actually succeed? Streets are very complex and they have, you know, so many different dimensions and activities happening in them that changing their function is never something simple. But streets are really at the heart of our cities and they've always been the place, you know, for social interaction. So making streets more people-centred is very important and and very key also to make them more attractive. Bruce, in many ways, streets feel like the hidden infrastructure of London. Um, you know, they're they're in plain sight, but not often recognised as being so significant. They're massively undervalued for their cultural importance as well. Is there an easy way to shift perceptions? Yeah, I think those are really good points. And I guess just to go back to the um, inspire and delight bit of the uh, question to Clarice earlier, the delight bit 
It's really about making sure that people enjoy spending time on our streets and that, you know, that experience of getting from, say, the underground station to their desk in their office when, when we're all able to go back to our desks in our offices is as enjoyable as possible. And it might be a conscious enjoyment or it could be a very subconscious enjoyment. It's just kind of, you know, getting along, getting from A to B, um, but, you know, with a smile on your face. You know, as, as public as public realm professionals and transport professionals, we're kind of very conscious of how spaces have been changed. But I think a lot of people, you know, just kind of go in there and go, well, this is nice. You know, I'm enjoying that. And, and, and often, you know, take change for granted very quickly, which, are, you know, I think is a great thing. We need to make it as enjoyable to get around as possible. And that does mean creating different types of spaces or changing the way that our streets work. And I guess this this interest this thing about a hierarchy of speeds is interesting because to me what what probably really shows the sign of a successful street is when people aren't moving you know it's not about speed it's about stopping and standing still and one of the really interesting things that's happened is at Bank Junction which might be familiar to to some people listening we're kind of at the second stage of a transformation of that space so the first move was taking out a lot of the traffic and. Um, closing it to just uh, uh, everything other than buses and cycles during the day. The second move was just doing as much footway widening, as much pavement widening as we could, but not really changing the way that the junction operated. Then there's a there's a third more transformational stage coming. But even just what was a relatively modest change in the amount of space that was provided for people in that uh, junction totally changed the way people use it. So rather than people just hurrying through it um, you know, in a really crowded space outside an underground entrance, people are suddenly, you know, stopping, they're having conversations in that space, they're taking phone calls in that space. So it doesn't take a lot to change a street, but, you know, changing that balance and just kind of moving a bit more space to people on foot can really change the way that people experience it, make it much more enjoyable. And to just finish on the inspire bit of uh, inspire and delight, we want to be known as somewhere around the world that has great streets, that has great spaces that people come to to spend time in and enjoy and, you know, experience all that the city has to offer, um, you know, without having to spend any money or do anything else. But, you know, that we're known as somewhere that has taken the time and the effort and the care to really create an environment that works for works for people. Laurie, uh, historically, it was the City Corporation which saved some of outer London's most amazing natural public spaces. So places like Epping Forest, Hampstead Heath, Ashdead Common, Farthing Downs. In this extraordinary moment now, is there a similar opportunity to act big and bold again, but this time on the streets themselves? And could this possibly do be to do with facilitating new activities? I think actually... Um... The Outdoor Arts Programme has actually already been doing this in many respects. Um, we use the programme to take over the streets, to, to use the public realm and non-traditional performance spaces to, to bring culture directly to people um, on the streets in, in the most democratic way possible. Um, in 2019, our commission, thank you for having us, by um, French street arts company Generic Vapeur 
and the UK's only flying trapeze circus company, Gorilla Circus. Um, we turned Cheapside into an outdoor stage and there was a giant flying trapeze rig opposite St Paul's. We had grand pianos being pushed around closed roads that had French rock bands on them. And uh, it was about bringing exceptional kind of world-class culture to the streets um, of the city for people to experience for free, to kind of be in public space in a totally different way um, and bring people from all different communities together in a collective experience. There's huge opportunity um, for to open up the city in a much more radical way. Prioritising sustainable travel is nothing new, and there are many areas where battles are erupting along lines similar to decades earlier. In Ballum, temporary interventions to create low-traffic neighbourhoods have reignited debates which date back to the 1970s. In Islington, back in July, car and taxi drivers blocked Upper Street in a protest against changes to make the area better for pedestrians and cyclists. It's probably not possible to shift the way we transport without recognising the many different people who use our streets. And it's particularly important when we think of the crucial role that key workers have played during the pandemic. So Bruce, perhaps you could tell us a bit about how the city is rolling out its transport strategy in a way which supports both those essential workers and also the office tenants, while also creating spaces which continue to welcome new visitors, like outsiders, possibly people like me who don't live or work in the city. Uh, but then also those existing residents as well uh, as a big kind of big mix of city culture. I guess what's interesting, just go to um, Lara's point there about um, the response to the pandemic and and different users of streets, but also the way that people might use need need to use streets in a different way in response to particular circumstances. And, you know, I guess the initial first few months of the pandemic um, were absolutely one of those times where it was appropriate to, you know, actually enable people to drive into the city, which is not something we want to do in the long term. But, you know, we obviously recognise the huge role that uh, NHS workers at, at Bart's Hospital in the city played during the pandemic and our own essential workers as well. You know, we had colleagues from our cleansing team, for example, who were in the city every day making sure that, um, you know, the rubbish was collected and everything else. And, and so I think it was absolutely right, you know, at that time that we opened up our car parks to NHS workers uh, for free. But I think we also knew that that wasn't, you know, a sustainable solution and it's not going to be uh, the long run. And, and you know, Bart's themselves have written to us and said, you know, thank you for that. But we also want you to make the streets really great places for people to cycle because that's how we want people and patients uh, when they can to get get to get to the hospital. Really, what we're trying to do for, for, you know, everybody who's coming to the city, whether they work in an office, work in a hospital, work in a shop, whether they're studying here, whether they, they live in the city, they've got the street environment, they've got a, a space that really uh, works for them and is attractive uh, for them as well. Laurie, is there an important role for play when it comes to engaging people in public space? I'm thinking of projects like uh, the People's Tower and how possibly things like this can change perceptions about what is possible in public spaces and who can use them. 
outdoor arts are kind of a vital and unique part of our cultural ecology and offer the broadest possible access um, to the public um, for the arts. And they they can challenge and entertain. Um, and they're the most kind of inclusive and empowering art form, I believe, um, which captivate communities um, and inspire innovation and cohesion and placemaking, community building. And the People's Tower is, is a perfect example of this. Um, so last year, we had over 3,000 young people and families um, to the Guildhall over a weekend um, to build this 20-metre cardboard tower, um, which was inspired um, by the Guildhall and designed by this French artist Olivier Grosset. And it was amazing to witness kind of strangers coming together to collaborate and work as a community to build something and experience something completely unique. Experiences like that have a transformational effect on people and they completely change uh, the way that they might view a place, what might be possible in that space or how that space might be used. Um, And it creates a sense of community and gives people ownership um, over a space that they might not ordinarily think is for them. So you've all shared um, many spaces that you've uh, been delivering, been working on recently or that are in the pipeline that we can tell are going to be really special and offer something different to the City of London. Um, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about the everyday spaces, um, the places where people will pass through and, as Bruce said earlier, that will even stop in um, to enjoy a quiet sit down or a drink um, or uh, kids enjoy stopping to play. Um, how do you approach um, making sure that those everyday spaces are just as enjoyable as the special ones? Um, it's very important indeed to make this everyday space um, you know, welcoming and, and, and successful. And in the cities, the way we approach it is that we don't consider... Uh, each project individually, but we consider all the project and the city on its own as one project um, with the idea that, you know, this creates like a kind of a wallpaper where, you know, we've got a consistent approach to design um, in terms of the use of uh, uh, materials as well. And also to ensure, you know, people... um, you know, start animating these spaces. And, and as I said, you know, get ownership of these spaces. It's about also creating flexibility. You just mentioned, you know, play. Play and informal recreation is something also very important. You know, using the uh, urban street furniture to, to create some, some play and playfulness um, and allowing people to use them as such. It's really about, you know, making the streets uh, welcoming and, and, and open for, you know, lots of different activities. And really becoming, like I like to say, like the stage of the urban life. And I I love that analogy of the wallpaper. Um, And it did make me think of um, my kids walking along the street. You know, they love that upstand and the pavement or that tiny little bit of wall that they have to balance while walking along um, just as much as they like the formal playground. Um, And I wonder if we can talk about a specific example um, of co-design that's been happening uh, in the city. Um, meanwhile, Moor Lane. 
where you have been leading co-design with Barbican and Heron residents to create a relocatable green oasis. And do you see that having a, a positive impact on public realm in other spots across the square mile as well? Yes, this is a very interesting example where we really uh, worked closely with the local community uh, as well as um, um, Wayward, who were the designer involved in the project, to develop something uh, that can really respond to the needs of the people that um, live around and use streets every day, as, as well as, you know, trying to take into account people that are just passing through our workers in the area. So this is an example um, and a pro- pro- an approach we will definitely want to uh, continue and, and to develop I- I in other places. So a, a lot of London's street network is very functional and it really just serves to sort of move vital goods and people around. But often if you think that's really to the detriment of the real kind of like cultural and in many ways the visual potential of these places. So is working in tandem with neighbouring boroughs, particularly around the edges of the City of London, is that vital to changing the perceptions of our streets but while also doing it in a way that keeps the city moving. So, yeah, I think that is hugely important. And, um, you know, I guess, you know, traffic is, uh, and and people are like water, you know, if you stop them going one place, they'll go another place. So if we do something on our streets, that will have an impact on our neighbours and vice versa as well. The, the, The kind of key thing here is to make sure that, us doing something doesn't undermine um, aspirations and projects elsewhere. To, to address some of these really big issues, we do need London-wide or at least central London-wide approaches to things. Whether you're a driver, walker or cyclist, it's easy to feel frustrated with the pace of change in London right now. As we've heard, the obstacles are significant, but the rewards are worth the struggle. So the City of London has had a a very um, forward-looking transport policy um, for a while, um, and I think your next one is due in 2022. Have you delivered most of your current policy? Um, And if so, what's next? And are there any international models that you will perhaps draw on? The first point on the transport strategy, it's actually uh, a year old. So we've delivered some of it, but uh, by no means all of it. Um, and yes, we are going to uh, review it and refresh it in um, 2022. So we said we'll, we'll review it every three years, which I think is really important to make sure it stays up to date. It was important anyway, um, but it's obviously even more important given that I think there will be some very big changes in how um, people move around and how our streets are used um, as a result of COVID-19. And yeah, we do look internationally to draw inspiration. And I was fortunate enough when I first joined the City of London actually to go on um, study visits to uh, New York, to Paris. And, um, you know, there's there's inspiration to be taken from all of those cities and other cities as well. And I think one of the really great things that's happening at the moment, people have been really keen to share ideas and to show what they've done. Organisations like the Global Designing Cities Initiative have been really key to that. And, um, you know, we're really pleased to be able to engage with those kinds of organisations. Yeah, so, you know, Paris is 15-minute city. Well, the City of London is is one of the world's original 15-minute cities and still is. You could pretty much walk from one point to another in, in that moment of time. But I guess, you know, what the 15-minute city is 
is really about is making sure that you have you know everything that you want and need during the day or the night and within walking distance the changes that the city's going through in, the, in recent years and will continue to go through i think are kind of reinforcing it and actually perhaps taking it back to what it used to be in terms of a, a, a much more diverse uh, place This podcast was brought to you by Open City, the creator of London's largest architecture festival, opening up hundreds of buildings to the public each year. Go to openhouselondon.org.uk forward slash appeal to help the charity that's been hit hard by COVID-19. A big thank you to Massive Music for making our podcast track, to our editor Ed Ryman and our illustrator Claudia Alexandrino, to our podcast host Selassie Satifa, Armin Nuri, Lara Kinnear, Merlin Fulcher, and our producer, Ruby Maynard-Smith, and the Open City staff, Rhea Martin, Zoe Cave, and Sean Milliner. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.